If you're um, visiting, my name is Jerron. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you're a guest, glad you could be with us. Um, also, welcome everybody on the live stream. Um, glad you could join us as well. I uh, want to highlight again what Jason just said, um, specifically if you call Christchurch home. Um, this seems to be an opportunity God has presented us to follow to follow Jesus in his mission. Um, Jesus is on mission to bring people into families and to bring people into his family and his community. Um, and you're going to hear this if you go through building together. And um, after that, that one of our values as a church is that we want to gladly give ourselves to Jesus's mission of of bringing good news to the to those in our neighborhood and those throughout the nations. And this is an opportunity where Jesus, he's brought people from the nations into our neighborhood and said, let's bring good news to them. Um, so we want to join. We want to gladly give ourselves to that. So I'd encourage you to talk with Jason and Abigail, see what that could be. Um, ask God what he might be asking us to do together. Um, even if you'd say, I don't have the time. Um, I think um, here in a few weeks, we as a church will take an offering and say, we'll, we'll contribute financially to this as well. So we can get alongside of the people who are giving their time. So let's be glad to give ourselves to that. I think this is going to be a, an amazing thing. We're going to see God do some cool stuff. Um, also next one, building together. You've heard over the past few weeks, us talk about building together. What building together is, is it's a, it's a two part course where we basically have a conversation on what it means to be a part of Christ church. What, who are we? What do we value? What do we believe? What do we do together? Um, this is a time for us. Those of us who've been longtime members of Christ church, this is a time for us to, to commit together, um, to recommit together. I was talking to someone a few months ago and they said, we want to be a body and we want to live as the body and serve the body and love the body. But it might be time to, to reestablish who is the body. Um, so building together is a chance for us to, to, to sit down, to raise our hand, to recommit, to say we are a part of this body and we're going forward together. So I'd encourage you to join that. And also, if you aren't a member of Christ Church and want to know what it is to be a part of Christ Church, this is for you. Um, we're there to answer your questions and things of that sort. So I'd highly invite everyone to come to building together. Um, other than that, we're about to be in Revelation. Um, we're going to be in Revelation for, I think, nine weeks. Um, the name of the series will be called Moment of Clarity. Um, what, what God's doing in the book of Revelation is he's giving his people clarity on what's happening around them. He's giving them clarity on his perspective and his purposes for their situation. Through the letter of John, God is establishing a moment of clarity for the people. Um, and I want to double that, and I want to take time in this book so that we could have a moment of clarity on what's actually going on in Revelation. Um, I think one of Satan, his long-time ancient strategies has been to to twist our understanding of the word of God. And one of the ways I think he's done that is he's either scared Christians from the book of Revelation or he's made us really weird about the book of Revelation. Um, so what I want to do is I want to take nine weeks and let's look at this letter for what it is. Um, this thing isn't a mystery. The, the, the God wouldn't write a letter called Revelation for us to not know what it means. Revelation means reveal. Um, so I want to take nine weeks and hear what God's revealing to us. So nine weeks, we'll be in a series called Moment of Clarity. My wife, she uh, suggested that I call it Spooky Season. Um, so Revelation, subtitle Spooky Season. If you're less spiritual, you can have that title if you want. Um, Revelation chapter one is what we'll be. We'll be in Revelation one today. 
Uh, before we get into it, I want to give you three things to remember as we're reading this um, to help us understand this. These aren't the only three things that you should keep in mind when reading this, but these are three major things that will help us get an understanding of this letter. Um, the first thing is that you're reading somebody else's mail. You're, you're reading somebody else's, somebody else's messages. Um, this letter wasn't written to you. I don't know if you know that or not. This isn't a letter that was written to you. But at the same time, it's still good for you. Um, specifically, the man who wrote this letter is a man named John, Jesus's best friend and probably cousin. He's writing this letter to seven churches in Asia Minor, which would be today Turkey. So he's writing this letter to seven churches in Turkey. They're all within close geographical proximity to one another. And most people think that these seven churches are chosen because they're major postal hubs. And they're all in one circle. So these letters go to these major postal hubs and they'll be circulated across the rest of Asia. Now, now who are these people that, that are receiving this mail? Um, these are, these are Turkish Christians and they're predicting that the Roman Empire, who, who, who is leading at the time, they're predicting that the Roman Empire will kick up on persecution. There's been sporadic conflicts between the empire and Christians up until now, but it appears that it's going to increase. And it's going to come in two ways. The first way is to be a part of Rome, there are certain patriotic practices, if you will. Um, and one of those is that the workers guilds or workers unions, which which if you had a business in, in the Roman Empire at this time, your business was automatically a part of this workers union. Each workers union had a special God that represented its own union. They accredited their success to this God. So when these unions gathered, the workers and the business owners, they would be expected to, one, uh, worship and give gratitude to this union God, but also confess the emperor as God. So you have a job and you're going to this regular meeting and to be patriotic means to declare the emperor as God and to worship your union God. And if you didn't, the Roman Empire would snuff you out because that's unpatriotic. That's disrespecting the emperor. That's one direction where persecution would come from. The next direction is that the Roman Empire, they had religious laws. There were all, you could only practice a religion in the court, in the country of its origin in the Roman Empire. If you were caught practicing a religion outside of its country of origin, that's an illegal practice of religion and you'd be legally punished. The only religion that could be practiced throughout the empire was Judaism. But as we know, the Jews, those who practiced Judaism, as time went on, they started to develop a negative, malicious view towards Christians. Up until then, Christians were seen as a subset of Judaism, so they lived all right in the Roman Empire. Now you've got groups of Jews who are saying, no, they're practicing a half-hearted Judaism. This is a mockery of our religion. So what they're now doing is going to the empire and saying, those aren't Jews. Those are Christians. Christians originated in Israel. They're practicing Christianity outside of Israel. Snuff them out. And so now the Christians are, 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 are expecting this persecution to come, and they've got two options. They've got two options. We either continue with Jesus or we jump ship on Jesus and we worship the union God, the emperor, or we go to Judaism. That's whose mail this is. Second thing is that this message is foretelling more than it's foretelling. Uh, there are two kinds of prophecy. One is foretelling, one is foretelling. Foretelling prophecy is probably what you think of the most when you think of prophecy, and that's predicting a timeline. 
forth-telling prophecy is what's most frequent in Scripture, where God is revealing his purposes and his intentions and his perspectives. The book of Revelation is forth-telling. God's revealing the what. His What's his perspective? What are his purposes? More than he's predicting a when. It's not a timeline. If you try to read Revelation as a chronological timeline, you'll have a hard time. And God's purposes for revealing his purposes is so that his people would remain faithful to him. And the last thing to remember is this message is written in first century Christianese. Um, If I were to come to you and toe the line between sharing a prayer request and sharing someone's business that I ought not share by saying, hey, I need you to pray for Scott. He's in a wilderness season and it looks like he's backsliding a little bit. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Just by a show of hands. Okay, okay, so if you're watching a sporting event and the commentator said, this appears to be a David and Goliath matchup, how many of you would get what the commentator's getting at? If I were to say, if I were to say, I pray that God place a hedge of protection around you, how many of you would get what I'm getting at? The reason you'd understood that is because you understand the scripture. You know that every phrase I just said came out of the scripture. I'm using a a scriptural phrase, metaphor, word, and I'm using that scriptural symbology symbols. And because you understood scripture, you knew exactly what I was saying. You understand Christianese because you're familiar with the scriptures. That's what's going on in this letter. John is writing to these people in Christianese. He's using Old Testament symbols, Old Testament metaphors, Old Testament phrases. And these people, because they were well versed in the Old Testament scriptures, listen to me, they knew what John was talking about. They knew what John was talking about. This is not a mystery that we needed the Da Vinci to write the Da Vinci's code to give us. No, no, no. We understand this as so long as we understand the Old Testament. There are at least 500 Old Testament references in the book of Revelation. You want to know how many verses are in the book of Revelation? 404. For every verse in the book of Revelation, there's 1.23 Old Testament uh, references. So to understand this letter, we've got to keep our other finger in the Old Testament. So those are three keys to remember. Revelation chapter 1, we'll read um, verses 1 through 20. When you've got it, stand with me. John, he's got a long greeting, so this is a, a long intro, in, verse 1 through about 8 is a long introduction, and verse 9 to 20 is his uh, first vision, so we're going to read all of it. Starting in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Right now, that's me. And blessed are those who hear. That's you. Um, And who keep what is written in it. I hope that's all of us. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. That's the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Most people think that's probably an indirect way to talk about the Holy Spirit. Um... And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then John breaks out into praise to him who loves us. I love that. That's presence tense to him who loves us right now and has freed us from our sins by his blood 
and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then John gives us his first vision. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance and in Jesus that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John also thought it was spooky season. But he laid <laughs> a spooky savior. Um, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father, thank you for your word. We want to hear all that you have to say. Open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes. We want to see you, Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. The um, title I want to put on this is See Me Now. See Me Now. I think through this text, Jesus is shouting to all of us, I want you to see me now. Um, step in my shoes, if you will. Um, in August 2013, um, I'm fresh off the train from Lawton, Oklahoma. I've been in Joplin for all of two hours. I've been at Ozark for all of an hour and a half. And so I'm walking from the athletic center up the hill to my dorm of Williamson. And, and in the distance, I see approaching me three three shadowy figures. So the voice of my instinct says, Kind sir, will this be a fight or will this be a flight? And I say, give me about 0.4 seconds to determine if this will be fight or flight. So I start the sizing up process. You know what the sizing up process is, where you look at what's up there and then look at what you got, what's uh, right here. If what you have right here is more than what's up there, then you're pretty confident and it's a fight. If what's up there is more than what you got right here, then you're pretty anxious and fearful and it's a quick flight. So I begin the fight. I begin the sizing up process. I look up there and I start I start to see what they've got going for them. I see I see three white males, one one about six, five, 250, cargo shorts and a band shirt. His forearms are as thick as my head. He's got hair that looks like he wrestles bears and a band tee on. All right. Person number two, six, one, two, oh, five rather slim, backpack on, people around campus are yelling at him, he looks pretty popular, but doesn't look like he can fight too well, all right. Um, 
Person number three was Brock. Um, this is the day I met Brock. Uh, person number three was Brock. So, so, so that's what's up there. And then I look at what I got going for me right here and I'm like, five nine, five nine and a quarter on a good day when I stretch real well. Um, I've got a brick of an Android in my pocket. I've got keys. I'm 165, all muscle, by the way. Um, <laughs> just in case you were wondering. Um, I'm actually skinnier than I, that's off topic. Um, I'm skinnier than I was my first year at Ozark. Um, and so I, I, I come back to my voice of instinct and I said, sir, after 0.4 seconds of del- deliberation, I've decided that these three can't hold a candle next to me. Let's fight. So chest out, shoulders up. I continue to walk up the hill ready to go Bruce Leroy on all three of them if they want to try something. It was the sizing up process um, from which I got confidence to keep going forward in the face of something that was coming at me. Step out of my shoes and into the shoes of these Turkish Christians who John's writing to. They find themselves in the middle of the sizing up process. What, 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 what's up there seems to be a future in which whatever sense of religious freedom they had in the empire is quickly fading away. It seems as if the Roman Empire is going to send bounty hunters and, 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 and killers out to kill them and squash them out until Christians have gone extinct. What's up there appears to be appears to be a loss of their job. What's up there appears to be jail or possibly execution. And right here, it's just us. It's just the church. And in their minds, what's up there, that, 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 that threatening future seems to be more than what they've got going for them. So now they're developing anxiety and fear of the future. And their response, uh, their response based out of that anxiety and that fear of the future is to jump ship on Jesus. Some of them are already starting to trickle over into Judaism. Some of them are already starting to bow down to the emperor in their unions. They're starting to jump ship on Jesus now. Jump out of their shoes and jump back into your shoes. Because you find yourself in varying degrees of this situation all the time, don't you? What, what's up there versus what's, what's here? What, as Christians, what's up there appears to be a future in which the, the, the political landscape of America doesn't give us the preference. What, what's up there appears to be a financial strain. What's up there appears to be something as seemingly small as a tough conversation that I don't want to have. What's up there seems to be relational strife. And when what's up there is compared to what I have right here, which is me, my ability, likelihoods based off of circumstances, people's predictions, my own money. And when what's up there seems more than what I've got right here, my, my, my reaction is I develop anxiety and fear of the future. And I've seen people, including myself, who, who my, my fear response, my anxiety response to what's up there is to jump ship on Jesus. Not in big ways, friends, but I'm talking about in like daily obedience as I'm jumping ship on Jesus. What, what's up there seems to be financial strain. So I've pressed pause on generosity as he's led me to do. And I'm hoarding for the sake of saving for the future. What what's up there seems to be a political landscape that I'm not too comfortable with. So I've pressed pause on the mission of Jesus and I've rededicated myself to the mission of some party or person. What's up there appears to be pain and challenge that comes from community. So I've pressed pause on loving one another as Jesus has called for his family to do. And now I've I've went cold and I've backed out of the community for the sake of preserving myself. And we're constantly in this cycle of. 
confident anxiety, confidence anxiety, confidence anxiety. And it's those of us who are in this fluctuating cycle of confidence and anxiety that Jesus says, I want you to see me now. John, he starts off and he said, I turned around and I heard a voice and I turned around and I saw one who looked like a son of man. You know where that's from, right? That's from Daniel. Daniel was a prophet. God gave Daniel a vision. And Daniel said, I saw one who looked like a son of man. And I saw this one who looked like a son of man ride a nimbus cloud all the way up to the throne of God. And then God handed this son of man glory and a kingdom and a dominion that lasts forever. So all the nations could worship him. And 600 years later, this young cat, Jesus, 30 year old preacher steps on the stage. And when people ask him what his name is every day, he's saying, I'm the son of man. Jesus uses the phrase son of man for himself 69 times in the Gospels. That's more than he uses any other title for himself. We're more accurate calling Jesus the son of man than we are calling him Jesus. That's a joke. Then Jesus, you fast forward through Good Friday, fast forward through Holy Saturday, fast forward through Easter Sunday, fast forward through, through, through the 40 days where Jesus is taking his boys through an advanced Bible college course. And right before he floats up into heaven, he says, all authority has been given to me. In other words, remember the son of man who, who God gave a kingdom, dominion, authority? He said, it's been given to me. I'm the one who looks like a son of man. John says, I saw Jesus. So check this, check this. Jesus's goal for this whole revelation is to reveal things to these people so that they would continue in faithfulness to him through persecution. And you know what he shows them? The first thing he shows them is not the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21. The first thing he shows them is not Satan being thrown into a lake of fire with his homeboys in Revelation 20. The first thing he shows them is not the fall of the impressive empire in Revelation 18. He doesn't show them the execution of of evil and all evildoers from Revelation 5 to 16. The first thing Jesus shows them when he wants to spur them on to faithfulness is him. Jesus makes himself out to be their confidence. Jesus is saying, I know you look for what's for confidence and what's up there. And I know you look for confidence in what you have going on right here, but no, in your search for confidence, I want you to see me. Have your confidence in me. You've heard Christians call marriage leaving and cleaving. That's true. And it's more so true for, for following Jesus. We leave all other things and wholly cleave to Jesus as disciples of Jesus. And that includes sources of confidence. Jesus, he's calling us to, to leave those, those, those sources of confidence that we're shacking up with and sneaking around with. And he's saying, I want you to cleave to me. I want you to leave your money as a source of confidence. I want you to leave your ability as a source of com- confidence. I want you to leave people's uh, perceptions and treatment of you as a source of confidence. And I want you to only look to me. Notice what faith is according to Jesus. Faith isn't being blind to the future. Faith isn't being naive. Faith isn't being blissfully ignorant to what may or may not come. Faith is saying, no, I see that, but even more so, I see Jesus. So so here's my big thing for the day. If you want one big direction, I'm saying look to Jesus as the main factor for the future. 
Look to Jesus as the main factor for the future. Don't look at what you've got. Don't look at what might come. Look to Jesus. Jaron, what's something practical? What's that actually mean? I mean, see Jesus. See, see him, see what he says about himself and then regularly confess it. Jesus says all of the scripture testifies to me. Jesus is showing you himself. He's telling you things about himself in all of the scripture. Open up that book and say, Jesus, show me who you are. And he'll do it. And as he does that continually and recurringly, confess that, proclaim that, preach to yourself. You don't got to wait for me on a Sunday. Preach to yourself all week long for who Jesus is. And that's how we keep our eyes on Jesus. And that's how we make Jesus our source of confidence. So Jesus says, in your pursuit of confidence to keep going in the face of what may come your way, I want you to see me now. I want you to see me. There are four things in this passage for specific things that Jesus directs our gaze to um, that I think are specifically chosen um, to, to push us towards faithfulness in Jesus as we go forward, what may come. Um, so I just want to point out those four things. What are those four things? The first one, Jesus is showing us that he's here. Jesus is showing you that he's here. John said, when I saw Jesus, I saw him standing in the midst of seven lampstands, seven golden lampstands. In verse 20 of what we just read, Jesus says those lampstands are the church. But that's not the first time God uses lampstands to represent his people. The first time God uses a lampstand to represent his people is in Zechariah chapter 4. There was one lampstand in Zechariah chapter 4. A guy named G.K. Beale said the reason it went from one lampstand in, in Zechariah to seven lampstands in Revelation is because from between Zechariah and John, God grew his people to not just include one nation, but he grew them to include all nations. The, the seven lampstands represent God's global people, all of you. And he says Jesus is standing right in the middle of them. Jesus is there with you, among you. Oh, can I call David to the stand? David said, David wanted to testify. David said, I played a game called Where's God? In other words, I went to as many places as I could think and I asked, can I find God here? And David said, I wrote a blog about it. You might have read it. It's called Psalm 139. David said, I went to the top of the sky and there was God. I dug my own grave and laid in it and there was God. I took the red light to the other side of the world and there was God. I crawled down into the deepest crevice, the darkest shadow of the world, and there was God. David says the verdict is in. There is nowhere I am where God is not. And that's what Jesus is showing you. There's nowhere you are where he is not. He's there. But when I say he's there, I don't just mean he's like a body around. I mean, he's there with you. You have good friends where you look back and say they were there with me through all of that. What do you mean? That means they they engaged with you through those experiences. It was a shared experience. They talked with you. They they laughed with you. They cried with you. They listened to you. They comforted you. When I'm saying Jesus is with you, I'm saying he's there with you. It's a shared experience. He's a shoulder to cry on. He's a warm, comforting presence. He's a wise counselor. He's a friend. Some of you are going through hell right now. Listen to me. There's no hell that you can go through where Jesus is not. Jesus is there. He's listening. I love that song. What a friend we have in Jesus. All my sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to him in prayer. Because he's there. 
The first thing Jesus shows us is that he's there. The second thing that Jesus shows us is that he's got you. Jesus is showing you that he's got you. So John, he shows us what Jesus was dressed in. And he says a robe and a sash. That's probably shorthand way of describing what Old Testament priests wore as they worked in the temple. Someone helped me out and they said, notice Jesus is dressed like a priest among the lampstands. When the priest worked in the temple, their job was to keep the fire of that lampstand going. They were metaphorically tasked with sustaining the life of the lampstand. So Jesus, the priest, being among us, the lampstand, he's saying, I sustain you. But that's not it. Because John says, I saw seven golden stars in Jesus's right hand. These golden stars come from Daniel as well, and they represent the people of God as well. And Jesus says they represent the angels of the churches, which is a another indirect way of saying in some way they represent the churches in general. So Jesus is saying, I hold the churches in my right hand. But you know your Old Testament. You know it's significant that he said, I hold you in my right hand. You've read all the scriptures where God talks about the powerful things he's going to do with his right hand. You know that God's right hand represents his power. You know that Jesus is showing John that he's holding you with his power. In some sense, that means he's 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 exercising his power and control in the church. But in a more specific sense, it means he's exercising his power to protect you. Jesus, he's sustaining you and he's protecting you. The biblical concept for that is Jesus is keeping you. Come here, come here. All of you who say you're a responsible planner, come here. How how often have you been drenched in anxiety because you couldn't prepare to protect yourself or sustain yourself in the future that's coming? How often have you been sleepless because you didn't know how to prepare to protect yourself or sustain yourself? How often have you been hopeless and defeated because you tried to prepare to keep yourself and life still happened to you no matter what you tried? Let me free you from the tyranny of your own self-expectations. Jesus never expects you to keep yourself. He says, I protect you. I'll sustain you. He says, I got you. You know what I'm talking about when I say I got you. You've had those glory moments where you, 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 you had the goods in your hands. And your one mission was to get those goods from point A to point B. It was the wedding cake. It, 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 it was the eight cartons of eggs. It was the bags of groceries that you only wanted to get there in one trip. It was the four Starbucks cups and your keys and your, and your phone. And, and so you're, you're using all your powers to perform that balance and that to get those things to where they got to go. And then someone sees you and they're like, you need help. And what do you say? No, I got it. And then the glory moment comes. You successfully get them there. Not an egg was dropped. Not a cake was smushed. Not a cup was spilled. It got there safely. You had it. You didn't need no help. Jesus is saying, I don't need you to help me protect you. I don't need you to help me sustain you. I can get you where you got to go all by yourself, all by myself. I got you. If you need proof that Jesus has you, if you need proof that Jesus can keep you, just look at your past. Have five seconds of a personal testimony time with yourself. Why do you think that, 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 that you prayed so hard for God to give you that person? You wanted God to be your divine matchmaker. He said, no, now you can look back and say, Lord, you protected me and them from a terrible time together. 
You wanted God to be your homie hookup and get you that job. Now you look back and say, Lord, I thank you because you protected me from a situation that would have shriveled my soul. All of the things that could have happened to you, that should have happened to you, that didn't happen to you. God was protecting you, friend. How do you think your fickle and shady and inconsistent self is still following Jesus? He's sustaining you. I don't mean to be super reductionistic or simple. You woke up today. You didn't remember to breathe and open your eyes. He sustains you. Someone came and corrected you out of a sin that should have killed you. He sustains you. And even if he doesn't protect you from earthly harm and sustain your earthly breath, he will protect you from eternal harm and sustain you with through life with God forever. He can keep you. So Jesus says the second thing is that. Oh, OK. I thought God was coming down or something. Um, I was like, Lord, was I lying? <laughs> second thing Jesus says, he says, I got you. Third thing Jesus says, he says, I'm the shot caller. Jesus is showing you that he's the shot caller. Um, John says, I saw Jesus and his hair was like wool and his face was glowing and his eyes were like fire. You turn to Daniel chapter seven, and that's how Daniel describes the ancient of days, who is God. But Daniel, when he's describing the ancient of days, he's describing God as judge of all things. So so when John says, I saw him looking like that, John's saying, he looks like the Ancient of Days. He is the judge. Not only that, John says he had a he had a double edged sword coming out of his mouth. You know, the scripture you grew up, you, you've been Christian long enough. The word of God is is a double edged short sword. But but in Hosea chapter six and Isaiah 11, God says that he or his Messiah will will strike the earth and will and will judge and, and, and rule through his declarations. So when John is saying he looks like the ancient of days who is judge and he's got this sword coming out of his mouth, making these decisive declarations. John is saying just that Jesus's declarations are, are powerfully, potently decisive. He's a shot caller. She's not here, so I'll talk about her. She knows I'm going to do this. Um, I call my wife Queen Chelsea often, sometimes. Um, I call her Queen Chelsea. That's what her name in my phone is right now. Um, I call her Queen Chelsea because her word is what is in my house. Um, Queen Chelsea mentioned that she wanted to move out of our downtown loft and get a house with a yard. And two months later, we were out of our loft in a house with a yard. Um, Queen Chelsea mentioned that she wanted a puppy, and two years later, we had two of them. Um, a few weeks ago, Queen Chelsea, she, I, I said I wanted the AC set on 68. She said she wanted the AC set on 75, so we ended up compromising and setting it on 75. Queen, Queen, <laughs> Queen Chelsea's word is what is in my house. She, she, she calls the shots. John, when he's describing Jesus as the ancient of days with the sword coming out of his mouth, he wants you to know that Jesus calls the shots. His word is what is. He's a cosmic shot caller, if you will. And I'm not Jesus's words aren't hopes. Jesus's words aren't wishes. Jesus's words aren't suggestions that his creation may or may not uh, follow up on. No, Jesus's word is reality. In the beginning, Jesus said, let there be light. And it was as he said. 
In the beginning, Jesus said, let the sky separate from the water. And it was as he said. In the beginning, Jesus said, let the continent split the seas. And it was as he said. He, he, he stepped into the world through Mary's womb. And he, he, he said, get up. And, and crippled legs straightened up. He said, open up. And blind eyes had 20-20 vision. He said, come on out. And a dead man walked out of a tomb. His word is reality. Listen to me. Some of you are crippled with anxiety right now and fear of the future because you've let somebody else call the shots on what will be in your life. I'm not saying reject wise counsel. No, seek wise counsel. I'm saying stop putting your faith in people's predictions. When Chelsea and I, we were in, when we were engaged through that whole six or three or six month process, uh, we had people, they'd say, oh, you're engaged. I'll pray for you. And it was like that kind of I'll pray for you. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all are going to hate each other for year one, two and three. If you make it, year, if you make it through year three, you might be all right. But watch out for year seven because that one will take you out. Just know it's going to be a lifetime of tolerating and compromising and just dealing with one another. So learn to hold your tongue and wait until those kids come. Talk about debt. So Chelsea and I, we hit this point where we're like, like two weeks leading up to it. We thought, if that's what it is, we don't want it. And then Mary Chambers and Brian Gibson, both of them are a part of our church. They, they, they both in the same weekend told us, Those people are talking to you based out of their own limited experience as humans. They're speaking to you from their own fears. They're speaking to you from their own failures. They're speaking to you from their own limited knowledge. They're speaking to you from their own bias. They're speaking to you from your their own pain. Listen to me. Stop putting your faith in people's predictions. Stop putting your faith in what your mother said what happened in your life. Stop putting your faith into what the news says you should be afraid will happen in a few months. Stop putting your faith into what social media says you should be expecting to happen. Listen to me. Jesus is the shot caller. And I pray that you cling to his words that are truth and that are accurate as human history plays its course. And some of you right now are so wounded because you accepted somebody as the shot caller on who you are and who you will be. Your mother told you you were intolerable. Your father directly or indirectly told you that you're not a lovable human being. The the accuser right now is telling you that you're the sum total of your failures and God's been done with you. I pray that you embrace the healing truth from the mouth of Jesus. You are what he says you are. He's the shot caller. Jesus said, Side pro- sidebar, parents, you will save a lot of pain, counseling, and frustration if you tell your kids that they will be and what will happen is, is what Jesus says they will be and what will happen. Yeah. Not based out of your own um, hopes for them and hope God cosigns them. <laughs> Say what Jesus says about them. You'll save a lot of trouble. Uh, parenting 101 from a man with no kids. That's just me. Um, <laughs> that's called pastoral privileges. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Um, what, what was that? Number three? Um, number four, last thing Jesus shows us is that only he can do what only he can do. Only he can do what only he can do. So John, he, he sees Jesus, he faints, 
And then Jesus puts his right hand on him again. That's also the hand of comfort. And he says, fear not. God says that all throughout the Old Testament when he's, when he, when he pops up on people. So Jesus says, fear not. And then Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I am he. We've heard that phrase before. I am the first and the last. I am he. I am the first and the last. I am he. God uses that phrase three times on the back end of Isaiah. God uses that phrase in Isaiah 41. He uses that phrase in Isaiah 44. And he uses that phrase in Isaiah 48. And he's proving two points with this phrase. The first point that God is proving is that he's solitary. He's showing you his solitariness, his his aloneness. God, 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 he says, I am the living God. Those idols aren't. I am the first and the last. I am he. God's saying those things not named me that you're depending on at most are statues made of gold if you're rich. He's saying they can't help you. They can't care about you. They they can't do anything. They're statues. I'm the living God. I am the first and the last. I am he. So when Jesus says to John, I am the first and the last. I am he. He's saying, hey, those things that y'all might be depending on to help you through this uncertain future at most are golden statues. Your money's a golden statue. It doesn't have ears to hear you. Your your, your ability is a golden statue. It can't help you. Your, Your plan is a golden statue. It can't work all things out together for your good. Your stuff is a golden statue. Jesus says, only I can help you. I'm the first and the last. And then the second point that Jesus makes when he says that is he's showing his sovereignty. Twice in Isaiah, in Isaiah 41 and 48, the first time God says, who can do what I do? The answer is, it's a rhetorical question, nobody. And then God follows up and says, I am the first and the last, I am he. Basically saying, only I am sovereign like this. And then on Isaiah 48, God says, I created the heavens and the earth. I am the first, I am the last, I am he. He's, he's, he's expressing his omnipotence, his sovereignty, his power. So when Jesus says, I'm the first and the last, I am he, Jesus is saying, only I can do these things that I do. Only I have all power. The, the, the king can make any move is what I'm saying. You, you look at a chessboard and there's some pieces that can't do this because they're limited. There's some pieces that can't do that because they're limited. There's some pieces that can't do that, that because they're limited. In the chessboard called life, I'm saying Jesus is unlimited in what he can do. That king can make any move. And here's how he proves it. John said, he, Jesus said, I have the keys of death and hell in my hands. The most powerful person you know is limited by death. The most powerful people that you know are limited by hell. But the Apostles' Creed said, Jesus, he died and descended into hell. And John sees Jesus having come back up with the keys to death and hell to show, no, I'm not limited by those things. I call the shots in death and hell. He says, only I can do what only I can do. You're dependent on someone's opinions about you. You're banking on someone's opinions about you to dictate your future. You're banking on your own ability to dictate your future. Friends, you ought to bank on Jesus. Only he can do what he can do. So so who is Jesus? Who is he showing us to be? He's showing us to be that that he's here. He's showing us that he's the shot caller. He's showing us that he keeps us. He's showing us that, that only he can do what he can do. This is who he is and this is who he'll always be. So see him and we'll develop confidence in him. Can I sum all that up in one phrase? What Jesus is showing us in these these 12 verses or so in this one vision is that he's at the top of the ladder. 
This is a vision that's displaying Jesus's exaltation. Jesus being subject to nothing, but everything being subject to him. He's at the top of the ladder. Jesus is at the top of the ladder in nature. There are some things that are just better than other things by nature. Sweet tea is just better than unsweet tea by nature. Dogs are better than cats by nature. Chocolate better than dark chocolate by nature. But listen to me, there is nothing better than Jesus. By nature, Jesus is better than them all. You don't believe me? His cousin John gave us his resume and said, in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. As a matter of fact, Jesus was God. Jesus was God at the beginning. And through him, all things were made. And there's not a single thing that was made that was made apart from Jesus. Whatever they are, whatever it is, Jesus is just more. He's at the top of the ladder in nature. He's at the top of the ladder in authority. Anyone who sits in a seat of power has someone who sits higher than them. The shift manager has the has the manager. The manager has the GM. The GM has the owner. The owner has the feds. There's always someone who sits in a higher seat than them. But listen to me. There's no seat higher than the throne that Jesus sits on. You don't believe me? His homeboy Peter said he he ascended into the heavens. He sits on the throne next to the right hand of God and all angels, all power, all authorities are subject below him. Whatever power or authority they have, Jesus has more. And Jesus, he's he's at the top of the ladder in ability. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. You can lift 200 pounds, somebody can lift 250 pounds. You can do a somersault, someone can do two. You can name 50 states, congratulations, someone can name 50 states in all the territories. There's always somebody who can do more than you can do. That's a true statement, but not for Jesus. There's no one who can do more than what Jesus can do. He proved it on that cross. He proved it on that weekend that we celebrate in the spring of every year. On Friday, he hung himself up on a cross to dismantle the powers of sin. On Sunday, he rose back up, having freed you from sin to show that he can do more than sin. On Friday, he hung himself on that cross to, 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 to take the best, to take Satan's best shot. On Sunday, he rose up, having stepped on Satan's head to show that he can do more than Satan. On Friday, he took your death in your place. On Sunday, he rose back up, having defeated death to show that he can do more than death. I love that song that says, death cannot hold him. The veil tore before him. He silenced the boast of sin and grave. And because of that, Paul says God has highly exalted him, given him the name that's above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. That song keeps on going and says, you have no rival. You have no evil equal now and forever. God, you reign. Jesus, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. He's at the top of the ladder, friends. He's at the top of the ladder. And he's saying, I want you to see me. I want you to look at me. Those other things that you're looking at can't do nothing for you. Look at me and get your confidence from me. Pastor to people, Christ Church, I'm not ignorant to whatever challenges might come as we're together. We're not ignorant. But here's why we know we're going to be good. Because he's here. That's our mindset. That's our internal conversation. He's here. So we're going to be good.